You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So our republic, our democratic republic, turns out we couldn't keep it. We had a nice run. Well, nicer for some than for others. Slavery wasn't nice. Crimes against humanity generally aren't. Jim Crow, not nice. Denying women the vote until 1920, that wasn't nice. The Chinese Exclusion Act, internment of Americans of Japanese descent and Japanese immigrants during the Second World War, not nice. Redlining, red baiting, blacklists, white supremacy, Selma, My Lai, the Trail of Tears, not at all nice. And all of that came right off the top of my head. It is amazing how much not nice shit there is in our history. But it wasn't until this week that we could pronounce our system of checks and balances, the separation of powers, no man being above the law, all of that officially dead. Turns out Nixon wasn't wrong just before his time. When the president does it now, thanks to Senate Republicans, it's not illegal. Not anymore. Now, we haven't seen what happens when the president shoots someone on Fifth Avenue, but November is a long way off, and we don't yet know if the same rules apply when there's a Democrat in the White House, the rules being that there are no rules. And my guess is probably not, but we'll have to wait until a Democratic president declares climate change an emergency, which it is, and takes money Congress earmarked for defense spending, guns and warships and missiles, and spends that money instead on getting us off fossil fuels. Kind of like Trump declared immigration an emergency and stole money Congress appropriated for defense to spend on his stupid wall. And then maybe the next Democratic president can pressure France or Germany to dig up dirt on the Republican opponent. My guess is that Republicans would vote to remove a Democratic president from office for far less. And Democrats would too, because Democrats still believe in the rule of law. All Republicans believe in is the will to power. But don't mourn, as they say, organize. So instead of mourning this morning, I got online and I donated a little money to Amy McGrath, the Democratic former Marine combat pilot who's running against the odious Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Maybe if we vote the bastards out, Trump, Pence, McConnell, Graham, Collins, Ernst, Gardner, McSally, all of them, we might be able to revive the not always nice and frequently imperfect thing that once passed for democracy in America. The sham impeachment of Donald J. Trump and the shamelessness of Senate Republicans weren't the only news stories I was following this week. There's another that caught my attention this week. It involves a Catholic priest. Now, I hope you're sitting down. A Catholic priest is going to prison and may be coming soon to a sex offender registry near you. Father Brian Stanley was sentenced last week for sexual assault. He had been asked to counsel a boy by that boy's parents, and somehow that boy wound up mummified. He bound the teenager, Father Stanley bound the teenager with saran wrap and duct tape, then gagged and blindfolded him and locked him in what I can only assume was a very large and very crowded closet in a Catholic church in Otsego, Michigan. Fox 17 News primly noted, this type of activity is often sexually motivated. The way that's phrased, it's almost like the news station was letting viewers know that this was worse than they thought, scarier than they thought, because sex. I rise now in defense of people who engage in this type of activity with consenting adult partners. It's actually scarier 
when this type of activity isn't sexually motivated. If you've been bound like that and locked in a closet and it's not because that shit turns you on and you sought it out, then you've either been kidnapped or you're being assaulted by someone who is sexually motivated but not interested in your consent. We should hope this type of activity is always sexually motivated and consensual. But please note, never leave a tied-up person alone, especially if there's anything covering their mouths that could restrict their breathing. Anyway, Father Stanley, who investigators determined had done this to other boys, was facing 15 years in prison but got just 60 days. But also a lifetime on a sex offender registry. Now, I know this is a big reach, but go with me. Just as it was once inconceivable that Catholic priests would ever face consequences, much less jail time for their crimes, just as it was inconceivable once that Catholic priests wouldn't be able to assault children with impunity, it currently seems inconceivable that the Trump crime family will ever face consequences for their crimes. So, things can change. I live in hope. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Peggy Orenstein, author of the best-selling Girls and Sex, joins us to discuss her new book, Boys and Sex. She has really important insights to share, and we get into it. All that coming up on today's show on the micro and the magnum. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Uh, I am a 29-year-old lady on the West Coast. And I'm very creative and kinky and looking to date at the moment. And I'm on all the apps and I have it in my profile. I have kinky on there because it's very important to me because in the past I've had not great like sexual chemistry long term because of just a lack of creativity on my partner's side. So I just like feel the need to advertise this and be like, yeah, this is something that's really important to me. I'm looking for a monogamous relationship, but kink is important. And, oh, my God, every man's list, just a, just a wild list of their fantasies. You know, as soon as they see kink, they go, oh, what are you into? What are you into? Sh- should I just, like, take this as a disclaimer? Like, oh, if this guy doesn't understand what that means to just have kink in my profile, like kink positive or whatever, if he can't take that seriously and instead is like, let me tell you a huge list of all of my fantasies now. Cause that's what I keep running into. It's just like men giving me crazy long lists of their fetishes immediately. There's no spice there. Be careful what you wish for, huh? You don't want to date any vanilla guys. So you put kink in your profile and then you're overwhelmed by responses from guys who have kinks, probably sexually frustrated guys who've only ever dated vanilla women who've never been able to act on their kinks, with laundry lists of things that they'd like to do and try and experience. And what these guys are demonstrating in that moment is just poor judgment, low emotional IQ. They're getting out over their skis. But they're the guys that you want. They're the guys that you're seeking out, non-vanilla Guys, And a lot of those non-vanilla guys out there, again, have probably never been able to act on their fantasies. And then there's that supply and demand kink problem where there's a lot more men into whatever kink you might cite than women. And yeah, you are going to be overwhelmed by these kinds of responses. So what do you do? Well, you can take kink out of your profile and then have to go on a lot of dates with guys who are vanilla. But, you know, every once in a while you go on a date with somebody where – 
kink wasn't discussed in advance and you get to laying your kink cards on the table and you find out that they have kinks too, maybe kinks that align with yours in a lid pot sort of way, or you leave kink in your profile and you draft a standard response when somebody overwhelms you with their laundry list or their fantasy scenarios and you just tell the guy, hey, I'm glad you're kinky too. This is just one thing that I'm looking for and I'd like to see if we connect as human beings first, if there's some sort of emotional, social, or romantic connection and then we can move on to exploring all of these crazy kinks together after that's established. And some guys who get that email are going to react badly, block those guys, but other guys – Perhaps a small percentage, but a significant percentage of those guys are going to react by emailing you back or DMing you back to say, oh, yeah, sorry about that. It was late. I was a little excited. You don't see many women who list kink in their profile, and I kind of got ahead of myself. Let's go get a coffee. Go have a coffee with one of those guys, a guy who can, if not at the outset, not in the first contact, demonstrate high emotional IQ, at least in the walking back of that first message to you, demonstrate better emotional IQ. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old gay male in Texas. Me and my boyfriend of about six months just started being open and um, having threesomes and occasionally seeing guys on our own. But we made a deal to go hook up with this older couple in the city that we're from. But we, on the way, so like, like after talking for a little bit, whatever, exchanging, information and stuff me and my boyfriend headed to go meet these guys at their apartment and they were a little older and definitely very well off so it was a really nice apartment um we were just asking for instructions on like how to park and stuff and get up there and they were already being a little like kind of rude about it like just like okay just park and come up but it's like the middle of downtown it's like a little difficult and like i don't know they're just asking they're being kind of rude so it was already kind of like okay but then after we arrived they tell us that their live-in boyfriend is there, too, and, like, send us pictures of this other guy. And he was, like, attractive. It was just, like, really weird that they didn't tell us that there was going to be another person before. So we but so uncomfortable. We were just like, okay. Um, went through with it. So we, on the way up there, go up there. Um, my boyfriend uses the bathroom. And while he's using the bathroom, I'm, like, talking to the other guys. Um, they're already, like in their underwear making out and the older guy in the couple um is like off in the kitchen or something my boyfriend comes back in the room starts undressing and the older guy comes in and he's like oh hey also by the way another guy is coming and he's 11 inches so you're gonna have to take that one too and my boyfriend was planning on bottoming and of course this upset him because and upset me too felt taken advantage of and kind of like we were trapped into an like an orgy that we didn't consent to. So my boyfriend obviously is like, and me, I like get up and we're like, no, like this isn't what we signed up for. Like, sorry, like we're leaving. And the older guy slaps him over the head and is like, don't fucking talk to me in my house like that. And my boyfriend starts going off and I'm nervous because there's three guys we're in an unknown, like unfamiliar apartment. So I'm like, okay, let's go, let's leave, let's leave. We end up getting out fine and safe and everything, but definitely shook us both up. And we both had interactions with older gay men like this, like them just being like rude or like trying to take advantage of us. And I guess my question is like, why is that a thing? Like, why do some older gays feel that they're entitled to take advantage of like younger gays? Like, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't they be like 
helping out the younger guys in the community. Like, I just felt like it was just so rude and, like, yeah, like they were trying to use us. Very, very gross situation, but yeah, I just wanted to know your thoughts on it there. When you were parking the car and you found out that there was going to be a surprise other person there and they were treating you rudely or whoever was on the phone was treating you rudely about finding a place to park and you had that, okay, I don't know, feeling in your gut, that was when you should have not found a parking spot and driven home and hooked up with someone else. That okay feeling was the first red flag in many, many red flags. And good on you two for pulling your pants up and getting out of there. Fuck those guys. There are lots of shitty people in the world. Some of them happen to be shitty older people. And while it would be wonderful to live in a world where everybody was looking out for everybody and older people in the gay community, older gay men, felt a certain responsibility, even in sexual interactions, even in transactional sexual interactions, to be kind and not assholes and not engage in physical violence or manipulate people or lie. There are a lot of shitty people out there and there's something about seeking sex from anonymous partners that can bring out the shittiest shit in the shittier people because they don't know you. They're never going to see you again. They're interested in you for one thing and one thing only and obviously they were willing to manipulate, lie, pressure, even threaten violence to get what they wanted from you. I don't think that that's an indictment of all older gay men everywhere. There were probably tens of thousands of older gay men in the city where you live who weren't slapping around 21-year-old kids who'd come over for a hookup that night, the night that happened to you. And there were probably lots and lots of hookups, intergenerational hookups, that went well where people were respectful of each other's needs and feelings and were honest and open and didn't try to manipulate anyone into an orgy that they didn't consent to. My advice to you would be, again, to trust your gut. That moment in the, when you're looking for parking, that was the first sign that maybe these guys weren't good guys. And not to go into interactions with anyone who's gay and has a hard on and has their pants around their ankles expecting them to be looking out for your best interest. Now, some people are capable of doing that. Some people are capable of having anonymous sex or quasi or nearly anonymous sex or this kind of sudden hookup sex without treating that other person like an object. But there are some people out there who treat other people like shit. And often they get away with it because they're wealthy, they're powerful, or they manipulate someone into believing that the less risky option at that moment is to just give the person pressuring you what they want. And that's the easiest and fastest way some people think to extract yourself from that kind of dicey situation. I'm glad that's not what you and your boyfriend did. You got dressed, you left. You had a bad experience. People do. People have bad experiences, not just with older couples. People have bad experiences with one-night stands, with hookups, with younger people. Lacey Peterson had a very bad experience with Scott Peterson, the man that she married. There are shitty people everywhere. The trick is to be self-critical enough and self-scrutinizing enough to not be a shitty person yourself or know when you're being shitty and try to course correct for your shittiness because all of us are shitty sometimes – and recognizing when someone is being shitty to you or is shitty and getting away from that shitty person as quickly as you possibly can. Sounds like that's what you and your boyfriend did. Good on you in the future. Maybe vet a little bit more carefully. 
not that you should have to, but in your own self-interest, have a little bit longer interaction with someone and be clear. You can say, we've done this sort of thing and there were more people there than we were told. People were – more people were invited than we were told. And just so you know, like we're down for what we've discussed and nothing more. And if it's – there are any surprises, we're out of there and we expect kindness and we'll give kindness in return. Throwing that out there can scare a shitty person off. Throwing that kind of demand out there, if somebody's plotting, planning to – lure a couple of 22-year-olds or 21-year-olds into their apartment and then invite all of their shitty friends over, just hearing you assert that in advance, those people will ghost you. They will go silent because they know they can't take advantage of you in the way that they want to take advantage of someone. Really sorry this happened to you. Really sorry this happened to you and your boyfriend. Hey, Dan, and the tech-savvy, at-risk youth, uh, this uh, late 30s queer guy calling from the West Coast. Uh, I'm calling today for some advice regarding a, a good friend of mine and uh, him dealing with bisexuality or um, kind of repressed homosexuality, it seems like, uh, while in a marriage. We've had multiple conversations over the years uh, about his attraction to men, hookups and things like that that he's done, usually on the sly. Things have happened while he was dating his current wife that ended up in some big arguments with him and his wife. And recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got a traumatic phone call. He was crying and saying he totally messed up and evidently had hooked up with a gentleman that he used to see in the past on Craigslist, definitely not being very uh, open with his, with his now wife, who is the gal that uh, I guess forgave him in the past. She does not want an open relationship and does not really support him being kind of on the spectrum. And he calls me when he has these, these hit rock bottom uh, experiences where he just can't get out of his head, and it always revolves around hooking up with a guy and then feeling like he contracted a sickness or a disease, and some type of STD. Uh, I'm in the medical field. Uh, I tell him, obviously, he needs to go get checked. Symptoms don't sound to be STD-related. It's usually in his head. It always is. Then he has conversations with his wife, but doesn't really know how to have those, and uh, I just think he's in a bad space. Just wondering what your advice would be to him. I think he needs either a, a straight conversation with his wife to have an open relationship to make that compatible with, with their goals as a couple, or uh, he needs to um, get a divorce. I remember years ago, someone telling me they didn't accept my homosexuality. And I told them it wasn't a package on their fucking porch they needed to sign for, that whether they accepted my homosexuality or not was entirely irrelevant to my life and my homosexuality. Your friend's wife doesn't accept his bisexuality. So the fuck what? His bisexuality isn't a package on her porch that is going to disappear or be returned to sender or evaporate or something if she doesn't accept it. Your friend is doing a terrible thing. He is lying to this woman about who he is or who he's trying to be and cheating on her. And if they have a sex life, he's putting her health at risk. None of that is okay. And you should scream that into the phone the next time your friend calls you looking for comfort because he might have contracted an STI in his last interaction with a dude. But what she's done to him is also not okay. Telling him, knowing that he's bisexual and marrying him anyway on the condition that he stop being bisexual. That's just not rational. It's not loving. It's not 
kind. It's also not good self-care. She has to know that he's still exactly who he's always been sexually, that he's just willing to deny it to her face and struggle uh, against his same-sex attractions to keep the peace at home. What she's doing is kind of shitty and manipulative, and what he's doing is deceitful and shitty. And, you know, you want to say, oh, here's two people doing deceitful, shitty things and manipulative, shitty things. Maybe they deserve each other, and they don't deserve each other. They deserve to be freed from each other. So, yes, 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 yes to telling your friend that he needs to ask for an honest, open relationship, which he's unlikely to get, given what we know about his relationship with the wife, or get a divorce. A divorce, I think, would be the better plan here. And, you know, I've been in your position years ago at college where people would confide in me that they were gay and they would do this big, like, I'm closeted and gay and so tortured routine and expect me to sit there through every performance of how tortured they were. And eventually I would lose my patience and tell them to fucking come the fuck out already. And that this bullshit Hamlet routine swanning around the stage, with these really self-inflicted wounds was tedious that after a while as an openly gay person listening to this bullshit is just boring. And that's what you should tell him. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Go to the STI clinic when you're worried that you might have contracted an STI. Don't call me. I don't want to hear about it anymore. When you're ready to come out and live with some integrity and honesty, I am in your corner. I will be there for you. I'm still there for you as a friend. Want to go to the movies and not tell me about all the cock you've sucked in the last two weeks? Great. Let's go to the movies. But I'm not here for this anymore. I am not here for this bullshit. Because in a way... You are enabling this, that he's running out and sucking dick, but then at least he thinks on some level he has the decency to feel terrible about it and guilty about it and paranoid about it. And those feelings, guilt, terror, paranoia, are more real to him and feel perhaps a bit more like penance if he can share them with someone. He obviously can't share them with the wife. And the nurse at the STI clinic isn't going to listen to all this bullshit. So he's abusing your friendship. Tell him that stops now. And he should stop abusing his wife too. And she should stop abusing him. And they should get a fucking divorce. Hi, Dan. Late 30s, heterosexual female here. I have a question about parents. My dad is the host of the right-wing conservative Christian hate talk radio show, and that's been a source of great sorrow for me and great tension between us for many years. I just don't want to be in a relationship with someone who proclaims such hate and proud ignorance, much less someone who does it so publicly and for income. And it's not just his views about others. He actually treated me really terribly before my wedding. My husband is an atheist, and he's never apologized for his behavior or tried to make that right. But, you know, we live thousands of miles apart, so the strong boundaries have kind of set themselves, and I've been really content with the relationship, surface though it is, that we have together. Recently, my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness and was given only a couple years to live. So I know you say that a relationship is the best bargaining chip we have with hateful family, but does the prognosis of death change anything? Do I need to set aside my absolute disgust and horror at what he claims about gay people, saying the Holocaust and horrors of the Nazi regime could only have been started and carried out by gay people? And, and his completely hypocritical and pathetic support for Trump. Should I set aside all of that? I mean, I mean, do I owe him, just as a human being, compassion and grace in his final years? 
My boundaries have always seemed to be framed by the question of how do my dad and I live in this world together? And I just, I, I really just am kind of at a loss to know what to do now that he's dying. The other element is that my brother has strongly hinted that he thinks I'm being selfish or stubborn. And I know that my brother really wants us to be reconciled as a family. And so I feel pressure and guilt there too. And real concern because I really want to have a good relationship with my brother and his family long after this whole thing is over. So Dan, I would just love any advice you have for what I should do with my right wing hate Christian talk radio host father who is dying. Here's a fun fact before we get to your dilemma. Not only did the Nazis persecute gay people, not only did they make them wear pink triangles and send them to concentration camps where many were brutally murdered, the gay men in concentration camps who survived the war, survived the Holocaust, were re-imprisoned after liberation because they were still guilty of their crimes. Many of them had been convicted of acts of homosexuality. And the courts then, you know, the 19, late 40s, 50s, didn't recognize a concentration camp as a legitimate penal institution. So many of these gay men went right from concentration camps to prisons where they served their full sentence, no time served for the years they'd spent in Dachau. So fuck your father. I would, in your shoes, have a similarly distant relationship from my hateful father. You say that you've had a sort of surface relationship and you've been content with that and you have interacted with him intermittently from a distance and kept it civil and kept it surface. I don't see why that has to change just because your father is dying. You're not going to do a deep dive with dad on politics on his deathbed. And if he attempts to bring it up, if he wants to talk about gay people perpetrating the Holocaust, if he wants to talk about immigration, if he wants to say hateful anti-Semitic things, Tell him you don't want to hear it and that you don't agree with him and never will. You can also have deathbed conversations with someone who has disappointed you where you forgive them if it's in you for the ways in which they wronged you. Sometimes people need to do that, not for the person dying, but for themselves to let go of it, to let the anger die with the person that you're angry at. I would urge you to consider that. Not an obligation, just think about it. And I do think you need to take your brother's feelings into account, not in going overboard, not in managing your father's care, not being there every moment, but just engaging with your father a bit for your brother's emotional comfort so that you can come together as a family once or twice more before your father dies where you can forgive him and you can walk out of the room if he starts popping off about gay people in the Holocaust or whatever. You can still come together as a family, not if you can't get to a place where you can forgive your father for your father's sake, but for your brother's sake, not for the sake of your relationship with your dying, shitty, hateful father, but for the sake of your relationship with your brother, who's still going to be there. And you would like to be able to be there for him and have him be there for you after your shitty father's show is canceled. You're not betraying yourself or your beliefs if you go through the motions with your dad a little bit out of consideration for your brother's feelings. It's not a way of honoring your father, who he was, what he stood for, the shitty, horrible things he said. It's a way of honoring your brother and your relationship with your brother. Fake it till you make it to the funeral home.
Hey, Dan, 28-year-old guy from Ontario calling, calling about an ex-girlfriend of mine. Um, I was dating this wonderful girl for two and a half years. Uh, She was truly everything I could ask for. Great sex, really amazing person. But uh, the problem arose when I moved away to go to law school. It was about four hours away from where I'm from. And uh, within a couple of months of going to school, I got super overwhelmed with the workload. Didn't really see how I was going to be able to do the long distance for three years and balance it all. Thought I was doing everyone a favor um, and I broke up with her. Uh, She was totally crushed and didn't see it coming. And we just kind of, we we didn't talk for a while. But I, I soon enough realized that I'd made it. Thought I'd realized I'd made a huge mistake. I really came to regret it. Anyway, uh, about two months later, maybe a little less, tried to reach out um, and see her when I was back in town, uh, and she had no interest in seeing me. Made that pretty clear before and after that. It was radio silence. Um, at the prompting of my therapist, I then wrote her a letter a couple months later, uh, and she actually sent me back the letter uh, with edits. Uh, pointing out how I'd basically only talked about myself in it, which was totally, totally valid. Anyway, it's now been a year or just over a year, and I really can't get over it. And it's twofold. The first thing is, you know, I, I do think I made a mistake. I think I got overwhelmed and I jumped ship way too early. And I think it could have been something really incredible for, you know, years to come. Um, and the second thing is, even if I made a permanent mistake, I would love to sit down with her and just really apologize uh, and make it clear because it's it's just chewing me up inside still uh, how much I made her hurt. And so I'm just wondering, is that, you know, where do I go from here? She's made it pretty clear she doesn't want to see me, so I certainly don't want to intrude. Uh, and I don't want it to come off like I'm just looking for my own closure. But at the same time, uh, I'm really struggling to move on. I'm having a really hard time with it. Uh, tried a new relationship, just not working because uh, I'm holding everything in contrast to this, and I just can't seem to get over it. So I'd love to know what you uh, what you think about that. You know how you sometimes have to take no for an answer. You always have to take "fuck off," "go away," "leave me alone." For an answer. That's not the opening gambit in a debate or someone's demented rom-com. She is not interested in any further contact with you. You say you're chewed up inside by how much you hurt her. You need to consider that obviously, given her reaction, contact or hearing from you hurts her, makes whatever hurt she still walks with, limps with, worse. So closure. We've talked about this a lot on the show. Closure isn't something that somebody else gives you. It's not a fucking birthday present. It's not a Christmas present. It's not a gold watch upon your retirement. Closure almost always is something we do for ourselves. You have to do it for yourself. This relationship is over. You ended the relationship for reasons, not for crazy reasons. Lots of people have ended relationships because they were overwhelmed by schoolwork. Lots of people have ended relationships because they didn't think they could do the long distance thing for three years, but what your girlfriend or ex-girlfriend likely took away from that was you could take or leave her. Obviously, you just left her and that you weren't willing, able, capable of working around whatever difficult circumstances you might be in at this time to save or preserve the relationship, even if that meant stepping back from the relationship in a significant way. You just blew it the fuck up and blew it the fuck up. It sounds like in a unilateral way. It doesn't sound like this is a conversation that you had with her about I'm overwhelmed at school. I don't want to do the long distance thing. Let's take a break. 
let's end this and see where we both are in a few years time, but I need to focus on myself. It doesn't sound like you handled this well. It sounds like bolt from the blue. It was over. No negotiation, no handholding, no compassion. You screwed the pooch. Sometimes the pooch cannot be unscrewed. And you're just going to have to live with that, walk with that, process it, grieve it, mourn it. Obviously, the whole time you were in law school and until the moment you contacted her a year ago, you were harboring some hope that maybe you could get back together again. So you didn't grieve the relationship three or four years ago when you actually ended it. You've only been grieving it since you found out, since she let you know that it was over forever. You've only been grieving that for six months, 12 months, and in that time you had one relationship that didn't work out and you were comparing the person you were dating to her, yeah, that's all normal immediately after the breakup stuff. And I think the last year for you really has been the immediate aftermath of the breakup. And so you're, you're reeling now in a way you weren't four years ago. She's been reeling for four fucking years and she doesn't want to hear from you again. Don't contact her again. Like I told her, Another caller today, fake it till you make it, get out there and date, meet other people. The best way to get over someone is under someone else, as the saying goes. And eventually you will work through this grief, but there's no getting her back. There's your closure for you. Hey Dan, 31 year old straight male, East Coast. So I have a bit of a conundrum for you. It's not very complex. So I dated this girl and we started out as friends because she was in a relationship. She ended up breaking up with this guy and then shortly thereafter we started dating. We dated for several, like a few months. It felt like longer, but yeah, it turns out really it was only like maybe three months. Um, in that time, you know, I really started to develop feelings for her and I started to think about the future and, you know, us together as an item and kind of looking forward to that. And I, I felt like that's the way the relationship was going. But ultimately, I guess we were on different pages. Essentially, she broke up with me. I don't even know if you would consider it a breakup because we were, for all intents and purposes, friends with benefits, uh, even though I felt like we were doing relationshipy things and we were going toward a relationship. Nonetheless, we were never official. We never really DTR'd, even though I tried. And yeah, so she broke up with me. How do I deal with my, I guess maybe my ego or just my emotional pain that I'm going through from being broken up in the sense that she, when she broke up with me, quote unquote, uh, she said she wanted to be friends, you know, and on one side, I would like to be her friend again because I did like spending time with her even non-intimately. But on the other side, I can't help but feel like... Uh, I'm being relegated back to friend after she kind of tried me on, decided I wasn't a good fit, and kind of threw me in the recycling bin at the Goodwill, to take the metaphor to the extent there. <laughs> and so for me, it's very difficult. I don't know. Logically, I feel like, well, that makes sense. I've dated people, and I've decided that, you know, it didn't work out. But here, I don't know. It just feels like we got to know each other as friends. We sort of built a connection there, and then we started dating. We connected even further. It felt like we both admitted that we were connecting on a certain level. And then for her to break up with me and want to just take it back down to friends, I just, I'm having real trouble getting past that hurdle of just feeling hurt, betrayed, and abandoned, and just discarded, and all the other words related to that. I just really, it hurts, and I don't, I don't know. 
Um, and so when I think about spending time with her as friends, I, I like the idea of it, sort of, but then also I just feel like it would be painful to know that, you know, I wasn't good enough, essentially. She tried you on, decided you weren't a good fit, discarded you. That's dating, and you know it. You make that observation yourself. I'm not scolding you or telling you something that you don't know. You weren't betrayed. You weren't abandoned. You weren't discarded. You just weren't right for her. And just as she doesn't have to be your girlfriend eternally because she dated you for the last few months, you weren't obligated to be her friend eternally or ever again just because you were friends before you dated for a few months. If it is too painful for you to see her, if the rejection is too fresh and it really stings to be in her presence, just as you as a rational grown-up and a human being were able to hear, I'm ending it and know in your bones that she had every right to end it and this is a common and normal thing and it's exactly the same thing that you've done to women that you've rejected, she as a rational, healthy human being should be able to hear from you because we dated, because I caught feelings for you in a way you didn't catch them for me, hanging out as friends right now is too painful. It hurts. It compounds the rejection in a way that I, I just can't handle right now. So we're going to have to take some time away from each other, time off our friendship. Maybe in a year or two, I won't feel this way. Maybe in a year or two, it won't be so painful to hang out with you. That's usually how this goes. You know, there are lots of people out there in the world, particularly in Gayland, who are very close friends with exes. People rarely go from dating on Tuesday to close friends with exes on Wednesday. There's usually a period, a long period, six months, a year, more, where there's very little, if any at all, contact. And then circumstance or somebody reaching out to somebody else brings two people back together and they reconnect and the friendship revives, but you got to take that time and you are entitled to that time. You don't have to be in her presence. You don't have to go through the motions of being her friend right now. And she should understand that. And if she doesn't understand that, maybe you don't want to be her friend ever again at all. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Peggy Orenstein, New York Times bestselling author of Girls and Sex and Cinderella Ate My Daughter, contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and AFAR Magazine, published in Washington Post, Slate, New York, The Atlantic, New Yorker, among other publications, and has contributed commentary to NPR's All Things Considered, past guest on the Savage Lovecast, which may be her most significant gong of all, and author of the new book, Boys and Sex. Hey, Peggy, thanks for jumping on the phone today, and congratulations on the new book. Thanks, and thanks for having me. So this is obviously a follow-up to Girls and Sex. What motivated you to write it? Uh, you know, honestly, writing about boys was never on my to-do list. Not a thing I thought I was going to do. Um, but people, you know, everywhere I went after publishing Girls and Sex, people said, when are you going to write about boys? And I kind of thought, not my thing. You know, I've written about girls for 25 years, but um, nobody was doing it. And Nobody was talking to boys. Nobody was listening to boys. And so I started thinking about it. And then, you know, Me Too happened. And there was, you know, we recognized the sort of extent of sexual misconduct in every sector of society. And there became an imperative to reduce sexual violence. But I felt that along with that, there was also an opportunity to engage boys in discussions of sex, pleasure, 
intimacy, reciprocity, masculinity in ways that just have not happened at all. So, you know, I grabbed that opportunity and went with it. Masculinity, man. The, 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 you know, we talk about toxic masculinity. I talk about it on this show a lot. We rarely acknowledge that really the first people sickened by it, the, the first victims of toxic masculinity are boys themselves who then turn around and victimize others. But we have yeah. to be able to talk about boys as a victim of this, the culture's notions of what masculinity is. Yeah, it was really important to me when I was writing about the guys to, um, and I was talking to, talked to over a hundred boys who were um, between the ages of about 16 and 22 that were either college bound or in college. So that was kind of the demographic and all over the country, different backgrounds, different sexual orientations. And that issue of masculinity and the disconnection from vulnerability and defining, you know, on one hand, yeah, they knew girls were, you know, they saw girls as equal on the playing field or in the classroom or um, in leadership. But when I would say, what's the ideal guy, they would still, it was like they were channeling 1955 and it was all about, you know, conquest, aggression or being aggressive and chill, which was weird um, and emotional disconnection. And, so often what guys would say to me was, I, you know, I built a wall. All I'm allowed is happiness and anger. Um, I trained myself not to feel or I trained myself not to cry. Or one boy, his parents had gotten divorced and he wanted to cry and he couldn't. So he streamed three movies about the Holocaust back to back, you know, and that worked. Um, and that whole process of cutting, I, I felt like with girls and sex, I was writing so much about how girls were cut off from their bodies and their bodies' responses. Mm -hmm. And with, with boys and sex, a lot of it was about how they were cut off from their hearts and, and how being cut off from, from your emotions and ability to connect and ability to be vulnerable um, affected not only them, but then had repercussions in their sexual interactions. And reading about a lot of those sexual interactions is really harrowing. What I thought, one of the things I thought was really terrific about the book uh, and, and I loved it. I, I love this book and I think it's really important. Um, and I'm so glad that you wrote it. And I wish all parents of all kids, whatever gender had both girls and sex and boys and sex on their shelves. Can we, can we talk about when Nate hooked up with Nicole? Yeah. Um, I mean, but, but first, first you should probably tell us about like the, the prevalence of hookup culture and, and squaring right. that with the sex recession because younger people are waiting longer to become sexually active and, you know, teen pregnancy rates have plummeted over the last 20 years. And there's some discussion out there now, a little bit of moral panic about the fact that younger people aren't having as much sex as they used to. Whereas the moral panic used to be that young people were having sex at all. And we wanted to right. abstinence education, educate them out of having sex ever until they got married. <laughs> and now there's a lot of hand wringing about, Hey, young people are just on their phones and not hooking up, but the hookup culture you go into a lot in the book and, and how it functions yeah. And how these notions of masculinity have poisoned it, but it's not just right. boys, or it's not just girls who are being harmed by boys in these interactions. Sometimes it's right. boys being harmed by girls, and that's why I want to talk briefly about when Nate hooked up with Nicole, which you go into. In the yeah. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, first of all, hook up is a meaningless word. We have to get that right out there. You know, it could mean anything. It could mean making out. It could mean groping. It could mean oral sex. It could mean anal sex. It could mean, you know, penis, vagina, intercourse. We don't know what it means when a kid says, we hooked up. And it's intentionally ambiguous so that everybody overestimates what everybody else is doing. And it is true mm -hmm. that young people have less um, intercourse now than they used to. Um, but... 
they do do other activities have have risen and part of the reason is that you know in hookup culture if you're not um in a consistent relationship uh you're less likely to be having you know very much sex so uh hookup culture by contrast is the idea that sex precedes intimacy rather than derives from intimacy and and that a hook, hooking up is the kind of normalized pathway to a relationship even though most hookups don't result in relationships it's funny that you say that, that, that this is the new norm young, among you know mostly young straight people that the hookup precedes the relationship yeah. or the hookup precedes intimacy because that was definitely the standard forever in gay relationships that you yeah. met somebody and you had you tricked we you know straight people took everything from gay people and just renamed it we had tricks you have hookups uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that to me, sounds like how relationships begin. Like you meet somebody, you have sex, and then maybe if you like them and click, you meet them again. Maybe then you go out to dinner. Interesting. And it's really an inversion mm-hmm. for straight people. Yeah. And it, well, and, and the other thing about hookup culture that maybe is different, and I don't know, you'll have to tell me, but is that um, the precondition is being hammered. So mm-hmm. you, you, you would not hook up with somebody if you were sober. Um, because that wouldn't be meaningful. And so being really wasted establishes the meaninglessness necessary for a hookup and, you know, avoids that generational terror of the awkward. Or making yourself vulnerable because you can point a finger at the alcohol. I didn't choose to make myself vulnerable. I was made vulnerable by the alcohol and this happened to me. Exactly, exactly. And alcohol can become the reason for, you know, for, for the sex. It wasn't that I was attracted to the person. It was that I was... I was wasted. You know? It's exculpatory. It's exculpatory. We live in a de- yeah. and we never talk about this when we talk about you know people getting wasted and having sex. Is that a, a lot of times people can only have sex when they're wasted because they believe sex is yeah. bad and and can't let themselves do it sober and they will intentionally subconsciously get wasted so that they can have the sex that they want to have that they're hardwired to want to have but they need. Right. They need to be absolved of responsibility for right. it. I'm getting into dangerous territory here, but I want I wanted to ask specifically. Well, about- and I would say of the other, yeah, I want to talk about it. But the other thing that I think would be different with, with um, a, a gay trick and a hetero hookup is um, the way pleasure works with them. Wouldn't you think? Oh yeah. That that, that you know hookup. The, and what guys would say to me all the time was, you know, they just didn't care if the girl came. They would say, you know, it's, I know, yeah, it's bad, but. You know, that's not what it's there for. It's there for the story. The hookup is about the story that you're bringing back to your friends. And um, so it, it can be a kind of adversarial. And this will lead us to, to Nate and Nicole. It's, it, it's kind of an adversarial situation. And you're supposed to actually be less friendly afterwards. And so much of it, you know, what, what Nate said, Nate is a 16-year-old boy um, who uh, was went to, you know, was, was part of his scene in his school. And he said hookups are really about your, they're, they're there to impress your guys and, right. and you're doing it. Um, the girls there as a means to get off and to brag, but you know, it's really about impressing your guys. And so maybe you're going to be a little dominant. Maybe you're going to push because you're trying to get that story to bring back to your friends. And the Nate Nicole story proves or, or you demonstrates is it's not just guys who emerge from these encounters girl. with a right. story to tell that then can like wind up shaming, slut shaming the girl involved right. that you document that it's but also often the boy. yeah. boys who stories are told about the boys by the girls that it, yeah. at least in Nate's case really harmed him. Really hurt him. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, it, it, it meant that, um, so Nate, yeah, he has this bad hookup or awkward hookup and, uh, he, the girl goes and starts telling everybody because 
it turns out that he's kind of lower status socially than she is. She's a senior, he's a sophomore. And she suddenly realized that it was embarrassing that she hooked up with him. And so she starts telling everybody about how bad he was and how his nails were ragged. And, you know, and he is just, he is devastated and shamed and it gets all around the school that he's inexperienced and bad at sex. And, and they, they didn't have, they didn't have intercourse. They, you know, just had like manual sex and, um, and, and it's really, uh, it really hurts him. It hurts his reputation and it hurts um, his self-esteem much the way that it would a girl, like it's slut-shamed a girl. And slut-shaming is about girls aren't supposed to want sex. And this is a kind of mastery right. shaming because boys are supposed to be right, good shaming. at it. They're supposed to be experienced. That's what he would say, mm-hmm. is that guys are supposed to be experienced. But how are you going to be experienced if you never have any experience, you know? So there's like a catch-22. So that is also why a lot of guys would say to me that they, high school boys would say they didn't want to, you know, like do things that might feel good to their partner because they weren't sure and they didn't want to come off as not knowing what they were doing. So they would rather do nothing than risk that shame. And And the other piece to me was what they defined as female sexual satisfaction in those situations. It was not measured through, you know, oh, I don't know, orgasm. Um, It was measured through uh, male stamina and to a lesser extent, penis size. Mm -hmm. So they just wanted to be, to get to a point, like one guy said to me, you just want to get to a point where you you, you won't feel ashamed. It's about, it's not about her pleasure. It's really about your pride. So that when she goes back to her friends, she'll, you know, say that you, lasted long enough and so he said it kind of he said when he first started he had gotten past this he was older but he said when he first started having intercourse he would look at the clock to make sure that he would last long enough so that he wouldn't be shamed and he said you know it it, it turned out he he enjoyed sex but he said it turned it into kind of a task and and one in which he was not in the moment at all you know one of the things i really loved about the book and kind of was frustrating about the book was you end up becoming the confidant for so many of these boys you interview these boys and then you are a presence in their life they reach out to you uh, and you hear from them over the the two years you're working on this book and you see often you intervening you talking these boys off ledges them growing and learning in part because of your input and, and the questions that you're asking them and it just made me feel like, you know, to, to fix this, to, to correct for toxic masculinity, every teenage boy in America needs a Peggy Orenstein on call. <laughs> and that's impossible. Please, I'm already texting. That's so many. No, but it's not. I mean, that is, I think that's the great hope of it, really, is that I would have these conversations with the guys. And even when it wasn't like, you know, that they were having an ongoing interaction, when we would just talk once or twice, they would always say, wow, it was really therapeutic, or I never told anybody that, or I've been thinking that made me think about things in a different way. And I would think, and I am a total stranger. Imagine if you actually could talk to one of the adults in your actual life Mm -hmm. or even with one another. And one of the things, I mean, with both boys and sex and girls and sex, my kind of hope with them were, was that, you know, they could act as, as tools for parents, you know, to be able to read and reflect and see what was going on in kids' head, but also for young people themselves to be able to, you know, through the stories of, of peers, maybe open a more meaningful dialogue with one another or just in their own heads, you know? But 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 there's a catch-22 there because what all of these boys seem to be most in terror of 
is seeming weak or making themselves vulnerable, which is perceived as weakness. And yet to have the kinds of conversations that they have with you, which they need to be having with each other or need to be having with an adult in their life, they have to make themselves vulnerable or risk making themselves vulnerable, which at least with peers also incurs the risk of making yourself a target. Yeah, that's that's really true. I mean, and that's particularly true in terms of standing up to other guys, you know, whatever you want to call it, toxic masculinity, precarious masculinity, whatever they're doing. So in, in one case, one of the guys, um, this boy Cole, was telling me about trying to stand up in the locker room to an older um, an older high school student uh, who was saying some, you know, shitty thing about women. I don't remember what it was. And, and he and a friend tried to stand up and they got mocked and targeted. And so he stopped. And his friend kept trying and he said he watched while his friend became less liked while he lost social capital. And he said, you know, and I'm sitting here with buckets of it and not spending it. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and being part of the team, but you know, how do I make it so I don't have to choose? So I, I, I think that, you know, part of the answer there is that they need a lot more from slightly older guys and much older guys in terms of, breaking down some of those walls and role modeling and having discussion. And that's not an easy ask, but I think it's, you know, the one we have to make. Can we talk about porn really quickly? Yeah. Porn seems to be, you know, I like what Cindy Gallup has to say about porn, um, that she's pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Uh, And you write about it and document that it's, that the later someone starts watching porn, the likelier they are to know the difference between sex yeah. and because they've had experience probably by then right and they, right? Have, they have a frame of reference nothing else you know they're not just yeah. you know sitting in front of a computer contact right yeah. that cat is out of the bag you know yeah, access to pornography is is ubiquitous and kids start looking at porn very early in life a lot of people who are wringing their hands about mm-hmm. the sex recession think that uh, one of the contributing factors is, you know, kids are home alone looking at porn and therefore not out in the world seeking experience or sensation because it's yeah. being delivered to them on their phones and their beds at night alone. Uh, right. What's the since, – since we can't – you know, since for most young people, uh, people younger than me and up, they're going to see a lot of porn before they have any sexual experiences and that's going to decrease yeah. the likelihood that they're going to know the difference at least as they go into their first relationships. And this is setting not just yeah. – girls up for bad experiences, but also boys up for bad experiences. You know, we talk yeah, about girls yeah, going boys into... report less, um, less satisfaction, uh, with their experiences and with their partner's bodies and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Sorry, usually, no, no, no. But usually when we talk about it, it's like girls feel pressured to do X because yeah. that's what's portrayed in porn and boys have these expectations shaped by porn. But a lot of boys, you know, have expectations shaped by porn that, that terrify them. They don't want to do these things either. It's yeah. like two people in a room together, reenacting what both have seen in porn that neither really is enjoying or wants to do. How do we get in their heads that, that, that sex is, you know, this spectrum that there's all these degrees of intimacy, that there's all this kind of sex play that you can take it slow, that you're not there to reenact pornography. How do we get in, get that to boys and girls, get that message to them when we can't even have decent reproductive biology ish sex ads in schools. How do we have a conversation about porn? If I could solve that problem, but <laughs> I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, they're saturated with sexualized imagery, whether it's, you know, it's the easy access to a certain kind of porn, because it's, you know, the kind of porn that they, that they are accessing is not, you know, um, 
ethical porn or feminist porn or any of these, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be the first line what they get on Pornhub kind of porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's that or um, just what they watch on YouTube, you know, um, which isn't porn, just mainstream media, the, the kind of constant reinforcement of certain kinds of behaviors, certain kinds of dynamics, you know, sex is something men do to women, female pleasure is a performance, all these different things. Um, n- nobody's talking to them. And I mean, that was, that just was the thing that boggled my mind was that it's like, we have done such, we're so much better now at talking to girls because we recognize the harm that media messages do to girls. And so there's been like entire, like an entire industry of girl world that has risen up as it needed to do um, to help support girls and give them a better, you know, media critique and all this kind of stuff. But boys are growing up in that same culture and more so more intensely and nobody's talking to them at all. And nobody is talking to them, I think, in particular about differentiating between what's like just super arousing versus what's actually pleasurable and trying to know the difference between those two things. And one of the things you talk about in the book a lot that I think is we have to wrestle with, particularly those of us who are the parents of boys, is allowing boys to sort of rattle around with these expectations warped or shaped by pornography um, with entitlement and toxic masculinity, that that used to be a kind of consequence-free zone for boys, that boys could roll out there into the world. I guess that's true. Like back in the day, you could let your child grow up in that milieu, even when it was not as intense media-wise as it is now, and they could go out and, you know, and be horrible, and that would be fine. Right. They wouldn't wouldn't lose their job. They wouldn't get bounced out of school. They wouldn't get arrested or prosecuted. And we're setting boys up, you know, we're sending boys out into the world still with these attitudes uh, right. We're giving them these profoundly mixed messages where, where we're telling them on one hand that they have to be scrupulous about consent and they do need to be scrupulous about consent. And when we're not talking to them about pleasure, we're not talking to them about reciprocity. And then they're getting this kind of, you know, imagery all the time. It's confusing. And I really, I mean, that's, I, we just don't have the luxury anymore for all these reasons to not talk to our sons and our daughters too, not talk to, to kids about sex. I mean, I am preaching to the choir and talking to you, but it's just, it's like a form of insanity mm-hmm. that we are not having conversations with young people about one of the most important aspects of their lives and the thing that is going to be, you know, the most important to their well-being. We wouldn't do that with any other topic. And we do. Have we wouldn't that... do it with table manners. <laughs> <laughs> and we do have that conversation with girls about how to navigate a world full of shitty boys and we don't have a conversation with more boys about how not to be shits. Yeah. I I remember when my daughter was little that we would watch, you know, animated movies with, uh, that had like dysmorphic images of women. And I would say, Hey honey, look, her eyes are bigger than her wrists. Are your eyes bigger than your wrists? Is your (laughs) head bigger than your waist? No, why not? Why do you think they draw women that way? You know, we were like, when she was four, we would have this discussion. She didn't really love it, but we did it. And, Mm I, would, I don't think I would have had that discussion with a boy. And I, and, and I mean, that's just a tiny thing. That's not even about sex, but it's about expectations of bodies and what people look at and the impact that the media has on us from such a young age. And that's not that hard to start that conversation about. That's not like you have to say clitoris to your son, which you should be able to do, but a lot of people would rather poke themselves in the eye with a fork. That's, you know, a really basic kind of conversation that we can start having with boys. You know, the attitude is we have to protect our girls, protect our daughters as they head out into the yeah. world from sexism and these attitudes and these, you know, 
the representations of women. Uh, and what really comes across in your book is that we need to paradoxically protect boys too, that boys inherit this world whether they want it or not and whether it's good for them or not. They inherit this sexist, shitty, misogynistic world, but it's also a prison for them. And that's what really comes across in your conversations with these boys in this book is that this world that we're really concerned for our daughters and should be uh, that is going to you know, harm them or, 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 or cause them a great deal of pain is also harming boys. And, and yeah. to, to see that and to address that is to help and rescue these boys and ultimately then help and rescue girls and our daughters as well. Right. Absolutely true. And also to, you know, the, the other thing with boys, I think is that when we do talk to them, we only talk to them about why they're shitty. You know, we only talk about toxic masculinity. We only talk about don't, 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 don't. And so they too are really lacking in that sort of um, positive pleasure base. This is what you, this is how you can have a mutually gratifying experience, whether it is for, you know, you're with the person for five minutes or you're with them for 50 years. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we just don't have that. We frame everything in terms of risk and danger and not in terms of responsibility and joy. And that, you know, needs to have, that needs to just be a major shift for everybody. And our assumption is that girls want to connect and girls want intimacy and boys don't. And just putting that out there reinforces it. And what comes across so strongly in your book is so many of these boys want intimacy too, and they want to connect and they can't because that means making right. themselves or, or they think it's a personal quirk. A lot of them thought that their particular desire to connect was just about them. And it was kind of, you know, well, I'm the kind of guy, you know, who wants to connect, but you know, all the other guys, they don't want to do that. And then, you know, the next guy, I talked to the next guy, he's say, I'm the kind of guy who wants to connect, but all those other guys, they don't want to do that. They're like, well, are you all just like lying to each other? Is that? Yes, they are. Apparently. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. The book is Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity by Peggy Orenstein, author of the New York Times bestseller, Girls and Sex. Peggy, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I so appreciate it. Congratulations uh, on the new book. It is tremendous. Thank you, and thanks for the work you do, Dan. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-something male calling from California. I have a question about wedding etiquette as an officiant. My sister went through a really terrible divorce a few years ago with a man who was cheating and abusing drugs and alcohol. It was an unhappy marriage for many years, and she finally got safely out. Fast forward, and she's met another guy. He's great, everything that her ex wasn't. He has one kid, and she has two. They moved in together and blended their families, but they didn't scramble their DNA. They got engaged about a year ago and asked me to officiate the wedding. I've officiated many weddings, and my sister's always been wanting me to officiate hers if she ever got remarried. I was thrilled. Here she was, happier than I'd seen her in years, with a great guy. However, about three months ago, he went on a month-long coke bender and ended up in inpatient rehab. The wedding was put on hold indefinitely, and during the 30 days he was in rehab, my sister discovered that he had been sleeping with his ex and hiring sex workers throughout their entire relationship. He was even sexting with a woman and her 19-year-old daughter the night before he went into rehab, as he put it, to save he and my sister's relationship. He's out of rehab now, and within a month he was drinking again. He's back living with my sister, and all signs point to the wedding being back on. If this does come to pass, which it looks like it will, what should my answer be when she asks me to officiate her wedding? 
I don't think I can do it in good conscience because, frankly, his lies were so great and so well hidden from everyone in his life that I don't trust him. And I don't trust him not to cause my sister even more pain down the line. It doesn't feel right to me as an officiant if I don't believe the two people should get married to get up and bless their union. Am I being too dramatic? Should I just do it? Or do I have to have a difficult conversation and risk damaging my sisters and my relationship by telling her I can't officiate? So your sister got out of one terrible relationship with a lying asshole who had substance abuse problems and finds herself in what appeared at first, even to outsiders, to be a wonderful relationship, but turned out to be another relationship with a lying asshole with a drug and alcohol problem. Your sister, after he got out of rehab, should have had his bags packed and sitting on the porch waiting for him. God, I ache for his poor kid in this recently blended family. But she shouldn't marry this guy. And if she goes ahead with this wedding and marries this guy, you're under no obligation to officiate. And you should, I mean, you're going to have to tell your sister you're not going to do it. But you should risk having that conversation with your sister. That is often the price that we pay as siblings. It's often the price we pay as friends to level with someone, to level with a sibling, to level with a really close friend when they're about to do something really dumb, marry somebody really dumb, scramble their DNA together with somebody really dumb. You have to take that risk of speaking your piece one time. You speak your piece. You tell them what you think and how you feel. You ask them what they're thinking. You ask them what they're feeling. You let them know that you'll be in their corner, that you love and support them, but you don't support this. And then you let the chips fall where they may. And they might be mad at you. They might blow up at you. They might cast you out. But they'll know that when things go south, because you will have told her when things go south, that she can rely on you, that she can call you. It helps at those moments to tell that person you're humbling with that if and when they do call you, you will not I told you so them, that you will just pitch in and help. You will not ladle on the guilt because people will stay in terrible relationships for fear of admitting to family or friends that they were right, for fear of being I told you so'd. People will remain in marriages that they're already ready to end. They're just so terrified of losing face. So when you have these sorts of conversations with someone, be sure to tell them that if and when they need out and they need help, it won't be losing face to call you because you will not. I told you so. Good luck. Hey, Dan, Nancy and youth, 38 year old gay guy, white, cis, uh, live in the South. And I have a question about pearly penile popules. Uh, I've been listening to your show for a long time and I don't recall this particular condition ever uh, coming up. So I was um, sucking a gentleman's dick recently and I noticed some little bumps uh, on his dick. And following some advice I heard on the podcast from you from a while ago, where you encouraged a girl, you didn't want her to be the one on, the, on her tombstone that said, I sucked it anyway. I stopped and I inquired about these bumps. And that's when he told me about pearly penile popules. Uh, and I had never come across this before, to my knowledge. Uh, so I politely excused myself from the situation. He was very gracious about it. Uh, and I did some preliminary internet research. And it seems like these things, it's not even caused by a virus or bacteria or anything. It's just kind of like a, you know, like a mole, I guess, or just some, some kind of totally benign skin condition. But I just wanted some more information about this. Like, is this, 
something that I need to worry about? Uh, is it a symptom that's similar to another STI that I might need to worry about? Like if I see these things again, can I, I guess, just suck it anyway? Or is that reason to, for me to get pause? Just share a little bit more about about this condition because I don't know much about it and I haven't heard anything about it on the podcast. Uh, Magnum subscriber, longtime listener, just wanted to know what you had to say about it. Pearly penile popules, PPP. It's rare. I've encountered a lot of dick in my life. I've never actually encountered one in the wild as you did that had this condition. It is entirely benign. It is not a sexually transmitted infection. It's basically a, a kind of ridge or uh, row of skin tags, usually around the glands of the penis, around the, the base of the glands of the penis, around the corona uh, of the head. And because people are so attuned to things like herpes or HPV, warts, people freak out when they encounter someone who has this entirely benign condition. It was fine for you to inquire, to ask about it. it. Sounds like you were reassured by his answer. And anybody who encounters someone who has this condition, just fucking Google it. And you will see that when they tell you that it's not sexually transmitted, they don't have a sexually transmitted infection, or this isn't evidence of a sexually transmitted infection. They aren't lying. It's just a couple of rows of skin tags in a unique spot in a way ribbed for your pleasure people used to buy condoms with these kinds of bumps and ridges on them on purpose to allegedly enhance the penetratee's experience and with someone with ppp you get those enhanced for your pleasure ridges and bumps for free without having to put two quarters into a vending machine in a truck stop restroom hi dan we just had a quick question for you something i wanted to get your opinion on you know we've all heard the term you know, I'm not going to take no for an answer. And in the old days, it used to be something that somebody would say when, you know, when they're asking a guy, usually ask a woman out and trying to be cute and saying, I won't take no for an answer. But uh, my question is, do you think this is a phrase that should be, you know, gotten rid of in this day and age? Because it's uh, seems to be like a gateway to rape. Uh, what do you think? I rarely hear this expression used or a reference to this expression being used in the context of a man asking a woman out on a date and refusing to take no for an answer and that being kind of gateway to rapey. Usually it's in the context of buying a used car or making a real estate deal or signing a lease. And yeah, we should probably err on the side of eliminating the expression or the retort, I won't take no for an answer, from the language but I don't think it's contributing in a significant way to rape culture. But yeah, let's err on the side of uh, not using that expression, whether we're car dealers or dudes asking girls out on dates. Hi, Dan. I was just calling with a question about polyamory. My fiance and I have been together for about three years and we're getting married in June. Um, and we're, we're polyamorous. So I do, I date and I'm bisexual. So I date guys and girls. And one of the conditions I typically have when I start seeing someone is I do like them to understand that at some point, if it's going on for a while and I really like them, I would like them to meet my fiance. This hasn't seemed to be a problem at all with the with the girls. In fact, one of the girls who it, it just didn't work out with is now my fiance's best friend. And they go play pool like once a week. Um, but the guys just 
are not okay with it. Either either they say they're okay with it and then they meet him and they seem to get really in their head about it and and end it or they just straight up say I'm not okay with that. And I don't know if it's because guys are more territorial or whatever. So I guess my question is, is this a reasonable thing for me to expect? I like to go hang out in large groups of people on Fridays or Saturdays and go to a bar and whatever. And I don't really want to pick between like my fiance and my boyfriend. If I'm just going out in a platonic setting, I want everyone to be able to just get along. Let me know if this is kind of a, something I should just abandon at this point, or if this is a reasonable ask. Not only is it a perfectly reasonable ask, it's a perfectly legitimate condition to impose on the other guys that you date or sleep with, that you have a fiancé that he wants to know and meet your other partners. You like to hang out in big groups and you don't want to have to pick between your fiancé and if this person becomes your boyfriend, your boyfriend. So you're only interested in dating guys who don't have this toxic masculinity, whatever, competitive shit where they want to be able to suspend their disbelief and tell themselves that their dick is your only dick or the only dick you're ever sitting on, sort of a fantasy one dick world that they want to live in. You're not going to let them live in that world. You have more than one dick in your life and you want those dicks to be able to hang out together. So just make it a condition and guys will have to get over it and guys who have this hang up about you know wishing they were the only dick will have to sort of face that down and, and work through it and maybe meeting your fiance can help them work through that. Or if they can't work through it, if they meet your fiance and they're a tense, anxious, aggro asshole when they meet your fiance, then you get rid of them. But then you won't be wasting any time on a guy who might be able to work through it or get over it or not have a problem with it because you will be weeding those guys out of your life. If you want to date me, I have a fiance. He is a dude with a dick. You are going to have to interact with him. I'm not having a boyfriend that can't be in the same room with my fiance or a fiance that can't be in the same room with my boyfriend. That's the condition of getting into my pussy. Take it or leave it. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Soch in Pence tweets, Someday I hope to give people advice as gently and humorously as Dan Savage does on the Savage Lovecast. But in my case, without the ads for me undies or talk space, which is not to understate the importance of therapy and comfortable underwear. At Fesshole tweeted, I love my wife and she loves me but refuses to have sex. Suggested counseling but she refuses because she's just gone off sex. I don't want to divorce her because I still love her. But do I cheat? She's against opening the relationship too. To which at Rosa Eaton responded on Twitter, listen to Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast. He would tell you that she is holding you hostage. Esther Perel would say that the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. Her podcast, Where Should We Begin, would help you too. Esther's books and her podcasts, I recommend them all the time, so I am definitely seconding that advice. I would add, of course, that the original tweeter, Fesshole, should do what he needs to do to stay married and stay sane. And since his wife isn't interested in sex, he's not cheating her out of anything she wants, which means it's not really cheating. And finally, at Cave Dweller tweets, Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, wondering if you knew your lingo was featured prominently in Netflix's You, Season 2, Episode 6, hashtag GGG, hashtag good giving and game. I've heard that. People have sent me clips and I have tried to get through enough of you to actually see the scene that not only features GGG but Penn, Badgley, and Bondage. 
but I just can't watch shows, fictional, documentaries, anything about serial killers. Instead, I'm watching season three of The Crown right now, which also features some marital advice, Queen Elizabeth to Princess Margaret, about how you got to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. People have told me about that. Looking forward to seeing that moment myself. All right, if you want me to maybe read your tweet about the Savage Lovecast on an upcoming episode, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, guys. This is a response call. Just wanted to say that I've been listening to the Savage Lovecast for a long time now. And out of all the calls I've heard and all the kinky shit and all the weird and horrible things that people do to each other, the most disturbing thing I have ever heard was the man whose girlfriend had a threesome with his daughter and her boyfriend, and the guy thought it was fine. What the fuck? I mean, what the fuck? What the fuck? Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling about the Findom question in episode 692. I I think everything that you said was really fantastic. It all definitely applies. Uh, But I think I, I got the impression that this caller may not have ever had a negotiation conversation with her kink partner. Or if they did, maybe it was too early for her to know where some of her limits were. So if I might suggest uh, that they sit down and have a negotiation conversation outside of the world of the kink, but just in kind of a vanilla setting between the two of them and have a real, you know, head to head on what he wants, where her limits are, and how they can achieve this together, they might find uh, a little more harmony in their kink life. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I was just calling with a comment about the opening rant on episode 692. You know, if I had a dollar for every time I read a comment online or hear someone say that they're tired of having the gay agenda or gay stuff, whatever, shoved down their throat, I'd have a lot of dollars. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number to call with your questions or comments. Please do try to keep it under three minutes, or you can record it yourself on your phone using your voicemail app and then send it to voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival is coming to a town near you soon. Next stop for Hump, Miami, Oakland, Los Angeles. Head to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Peggy Orenstein on Twitter at Peggy Orenstein. And Valentine's Day is coming up. And if you are dating or fucking or friends with benefiting a Savage Lovecast listener who's only got the micro, not the magnum, you can gift them the magnum at SavageLovecast.com for Valentine's Day. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech sebi at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.